I want you, by means of introduction, to take your, take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We are not preaching from Isaiah chapter 6. But the Corinthians forgot about what it meant to be in the presence of God. They forgot what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means they carry in themselves the presence of God. They forgot too quickly that when you're surrounded with other believers who are also filled with the Spirit, that you are in the presence of God. And especially in the context of a worship service, you're in the presence of God. So I want you to take God's word and look with me at Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read to you the first seven verses. The prophet Isaiah writes this. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as he spoke, or as he heard the angels crying out, right? It says, the foundations of the thresholds shook, which means all the grounds were shaking. At the voice of him who called. So these angels are screaming out as loud as they can, so loud that the earth is shaking. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah is the prophet of God. He speaks the word of God. Yet in the presence of God, in the presence of angels, he realizes that whatever he is as a, as a man who is, quote-unquote, a man of God, he realizes how sinful he is. In fact, he waits for, for atonement. He waits for a symbolic atonement of, of a coal from the altar of sacrifice to touch his lips so that he can even speak. If the Corinthians would understand this, they would understand what it means to take turns, trembling before you utter a tongue. Because you're in the presence of God. They would understand that they don't go around just prophesying out of pride. But that every word that truly is from God, that they would tremble and say, we are all of unclean lips. And we first need the atonement of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And it's because that we've heard from the Lord. It's because we've seen the Lord symbolically that now we tremble and humbly and lovingly Dare we open our mouths and claim to speak inspiration from God? Isaiah understood what it meant to be in the presence of God and to convey power because of the revelation of God. This is something that the Corinthians had forgotten. This is something that the church has forgotten today in the exercise of gifts. When pride takes over, Gifts are made void. They're, they're meaningless. There is no longer love. 
And so that's what we embark upon. You can take your Bibles now to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We are embarking upon 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. These next three chapters, we're talking about the charismatic controversy in the church of Corinth. And so I've entitled our time together this morning, Divine Clarity for Charismatic Controversy, Part 1. Next week will be Part 2. Pastor Albert will take care of Chapter 13, which has the very controversial uh, theological disagreement on what it means that the gifts will cease and the timing of that, of what it means that the perfect will come. And then we'll go back in. I'll come back in and go into Chapter 14, where Paul provides a lot of clarity. And what you see in chapter 14 is key because that's what you don't see practiced in many churches today. But instead, what you saw and what we read in chapter 14 is the proper practice of the gift of tongues, prophecy, healing, miracles, and the powerful gifts of the Spirit. Right? So that's what we're going to do. Now, our time is short this morning. We still have the Lord's Supper. And so, God forbid that we are here until 2 p.m. What I'm going to do is simply try my best to preach in its original context, making a few references to modern practices. When it comes to the first opening verses, I'm just going to give you a high view. We're not going to go into deep exposition. You can pretty much pick up a commentary or study Bible and figure that out yourself. I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the gifts themselves, helping to give some original understanding. But then on Tuesday night, Tuesday night, I will give more background on why these gifts are so controversial today. In order to understand that, you need to understand the difference between classical Pentecostalism, which believes in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is evidenced through the speaking of tongues, which means every believer needs to have tongues, otherwise you're not saved. And so you need to understand the difference between classical Pentecostalism versus the second and third wave, which made some corrections. And then you need to understand the charismatic church, which broke away from Pentecostalism because they don't agree that every believer needs to speak in tongues. And so that's away from the scriptures, right? That's talking about the modern phenomenon today. And so we'll do that on Tuesday night, and it fits in with worldview because when you see where the Spirit is moving today, the fastest growing movement of Christianity is not in North America. It's in the global south. And when you consider the global south, the fastest growing groups are the Pentecostal and charismatic groups. So that is talking about Christian worldview in that sense. And I do think it's important for us as Christians here to understand what's going on in this world. And so we'll do that Tuesday night. But if you have God's word, please take it and turn me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Today we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. Point number one is the lordship of Christ over all spiritual gifts. The lordship of Christ. When we began in Isaiah, Isaiah saw the Lord. He said, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. And what Isaiah saw was the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ sitting on his throne. Revelation tells us that it will be the same Lord sitting on the throne. Only that will be Jesus Christ after his resurrection, obviously, ascended into full glory, and the church now gathered before him. But prior to that, Isaiah saw the Lord. 
Isaiah understood the lordship of Christ prior to the coming of Christ. And it's in that context that we read verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, that means that when you weren't saved, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. All right, so you have a couple things. That back in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is about to go and speak on behalf of the Lord. He's about to go to Israel who has fallen away into idolatry. He's about to go to the southern kingdom of Judah and he's going to point people back to the Lord and say, I saw the Lord and he's sitting high and lofty. And in order for him to do that, symbolically like we mentioned, the coals of the altar of sacrifice had to touch his lips. In the same way, the Holy Spirit now, because believers have been converted by the gospel, the Holy Spirit now touches every believer, fills them, seals them. And as the result of that, we speak. First and foremost, before we exercise any gift, we first speak the gospel. We first speak about the Lord. So actually, what Paul's saying is that nobody can actually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord apart from first being given the Holy Spirit. And because we've been given the Holy Spirit, the evidence, the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Spirit in you is the presence of spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts are a plethora of gifts. Not just the miraculous manifestations, but every gift that's lifted, listed in the, in the New Testament. right? The presence of gifts, that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so if you truly have the Spirit, the first thing that you will utter is not some prophecy of telling the future, but you will prophesy that Jesus is the Lord. You will proclaim the gospel. That is the first sign that that is the gift. If you speak in a tongue, you, you will have angelic prayer experiences, but the first thing that you will ever utter, and often you will utter in your prayers, that, that Jesus is Lord, submission to Jesus is Lord, praying that others would come to Jesus as Lord. And so the lordship of Christ over all spiritual gifts. This is key because the Corinthians are fighting over gifts. They're fighting because they're elevating the miraculous and the powerful gifts. They're saying tongues. It's an emotional, powerful experience. Therefore, they're saying if you have a gift of tongues, it's better than the gift of administration or gift of helps, which is the gift of service, right? Those are like the behind-the-scenes gifts. And the Corinthians are saying, no, you know, the prophetic gifts, the healing gifts, the miraculous gifts, those are the big gifts. Those are the stage and platform gifts. And so they're saying if you have these gifts, you're better than the people who have the other gifts. And Paul says that's not true. Remember that every gift is it's not about the man or the woman who is gifted. It's about the gifter. It's about who our gifts are, are meant to serve. Is that Jesus sits on his throne. He is the Lord. And so point number one is the lordship of Christ over all gifts. Now, if you look at verses 4 to 7, 
you'll see three things, and I put in a point for you. You'll, you'll see the sovereign unity, diversity, and distribution of spiritual gifts. And you see this first in verses 4 to 7, and then in 8 to 11, you see a variety of gifts. So first, let's look at the sovereign unity of gifts. Look at verses 4 to 7. Let me read that to you. It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. And then there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. That's Jesus Christ. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. That's God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given, that's the divine distribution, each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, for the common good. So there are a couple things you see here. First, the sovereign unity of the gifts. The sovereign unity is that, is that you see the Trinity. Notice that the Holy Spirit, notice that the Lord is mentioned, and notice that the Father is mentioned. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit demonstrate for us perfect unity. When you look at the Spirit of God, would you say that Jesus is better? I mean, I know we worship Jesus. I know it's all about Jesus, right? But none of us would say that Jesus is better or more valuable or more God-like than the Holy Spirit. We would see that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in essence, equal in value, but different in function. And yes, the role of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is exactly what it says in verses 1 to 3. It's to help people understand Christ and to help people proclaim Christ. It's apart from the Spirit, you won't even believe in Jesus. And what's Jesus's? Everything's about Jesus, right? The Father says, if you want to come, come to me, you come through the Son. You come through my Son. I sent my Son. If you want to come to me, you need to come through my Son. But the, but the Son, everything he does is for the Father. He, he submits his Father. He ushers people into the presence of his Father. He wants to glorify his Father. What you see in the Trinity, it says in the text, why does Paul mention the Trinity? Is what God expects of the church is that there are different gifts. There are certain gifts that are put on a platform, like teaching. There are certain gifts that are powerful, like healing and miracles. But there are gifts like administration and helps. And, and those are just as important. Just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal in importance, but different in function, so are our gifts. Different in function, but equal in essence and value. And Paul is, in a sense, saying that, Corinthians, you've forgotten about this. That there are a variety of gifts, but it's all from the same trinity. And notice, secondly, the sovereign diversity of gifts. Notice how many times it says varieties. Varieties. And it says varieties, right? Three times it says varieties. And varieties means there's more than a few. There are quite a few gifts, and they're all important. But I also want you to see how these gifts are explained and described differently. First, in verse 4, it says variety of gifts. Then in verse 5, it says service. And then it says in verse 6, activities. When you see gifts, service, activities, these are different functions, different descriptions of the same thing. These are describing your spiritual gifts. And so it's very important that believers discover our gifts, 
develop our gifts and exercise our gifts in the body of Christ. Because when we exercise our gifts, that's when the presence of God is evidence in our lives. How do you know someone's saved? It's not just that we say we have gifts, but we also practice our gifts. It is a power that's being executed. It's a power that's being deployed and displayed through each of us when we exercise our gifts. They need to be developed. And that helps you understand the word manifestation. The word manifestation of the Spirit in verse 7, it simply means that an event or action that, that uh, very clearly displays God's presence. Right. So what do you mean by manifestation? When God manifests himself through people, it just means that his power and his presence is clear. Is that when believers love each other and they exercise their gifts to serve each other, that the presence of God is experienced and people say, you know, this is a God thing. Right? Nobody would take credit. Nobody would say, wow, you encouraged me. It's because you're so great and you're so awesome. Right? And the person who gave encouragement wouldn't say, oh, it's because I happened to do my devotions this morning because I'm so great at doing my devotions. Right? Nobody would say that. People would say, I, I don't know. But by God's grace, that happened to me, my devotion this morning. And now I speak it to you. And because the, the Spirit of God brought that to me, that what I read this morning, I'm sharing with you. And I didn't know you were hurting. I didn't know you were discouraged. And you're telling me you're so blessed by that? It's, it's as if God spoke through one person to another, and then the person who was hurting was built up, edified, and lifted up. And said, I needed to hear that. That was almost like a word from, from the Lord, although it is the word of God being applied. Right? So in that presence, what's happening in that moment? It's the presence of God is being executed. It's being manifested. And people are saying, that's not man. That's not because humans are great. That's because the Spirit of God is working through his people for the common good of one another. The body of Christ being built up. And so uh, that leads to, in verse 7, when it says the sovereign, and so three things I want you to see, right? The sovereign unity of gifts, the sovereign diversity of gifts, the sovereign distribution of gifts. Look at verse 7, it says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, which means the Trinity chooses what gifts we get. We don't get to choose which gifts we get. Right, we don't get to upon salvation. I mean, I, I I didn't do this, but you know, our consumer culture. You could imagine if I knew about this, I would have, I would have said, "Hey, Sunday school teacher, before I receive Christ, I want to know what what gifts am I going to get? Am I going to get the Billy Graham gift of evangelism? If I get that, then I'll receive Christ." Right? I mean, that's how we kind of think when we bargain. Right? What what do I get? What are the benefits? Is there, a, is there a security plan I need to purchase? How does that work? What's the warranty? Right? But it's not that way with God. When we receive Christ, we receive whatever gifts he gives us. Not only that, but we don't get to choose the degree of gift. Oh, I wish that I had the teaching gift of John Piper. Now, people would say, well, Hanley, you know, your spiritual gift is the gift of teaching, so that's why you need to be preaching. But I don't have the same level of spiritual gifting as the guys or the woman teachers like Jen Wilkin or others that you guys listen to every single day. Right? When you pull up your pad podcast, podcast, when you listen, when you pull up your, your podcast, you don't listen to Hanley Lou, 
right? You listen to someone who's much more gifted, and you ought to, and you should. So we don't get to choose how gifted we are. So two things, right? The sovereign distribution of which gifts we get and the degree of gifting is not up to us. It's up to the sovereignty of God to decide. And God has his reasons. He has his purposes. And that's what we have to believe this morning. And so now in verses 8 to 11, I got to look at my, my time because I can go forever on, on teaching these gifts because there's so much to explain. But I want to make sure that we're, we have time for the Lord's Supper. Okay, In verses 8 to 11, whatever I don't explain, I'll pick it up on Tuesday night. Okay, But in verses 8 to 11, you, you see um, there's a diversity of gifts. And the first ones we're going to look at, starting in verse 8, is we're going to look at the gifts of inspired instruction. Now, I know there's some overlap in terms of description of gifts. So sometimes when we make subpoints, it's it's not going to always have this nice, clear break. But I like to have some degree of notes to follow, right? Some degree of subpoints, subpoints, so that I can follow something. So in verse 8, the best way to describe what you see in verse 8 are the gifts of inspired instruction. So look at verse 8. It says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now, two things need to be said here. Number one, remember that the gifts are for the common good. So if someone is wise, but they don't share that wisdom, that's not an exercise of spiritual gifts, right? The second thing is, uh, if someone has knowledge of the Bible, but they're not teaching it or not sharing it, that's also not a spiritual gift or not an exercise of the spiritual gift because whatever is a spiritual gift, it needs to be exercised for the manifestation to happen, which means other people have to be built up. And other people have to say, wow, that was powerful. Right? right? The big difference is that you have religious studies uh, professors in universities who know how to teach the Bible historically and they understand the ancient sources so much better than all of us. In, you know, all of us pastors, we don't study to that degree. So they can teach all kinds of things about religion and the Bible, but, but they might not believe in Jesus Christ. And so when they teach, they're simply teaching knowledge, but there's no power. And so the difference is you can have somebody who's teaching the Bible to children. And they don't have a Ph.D. or a master's degree or anything. And somehow that child believes in Christ. What happened there? Power. The Spirit was working through that Sunday school teacher or that small group leader, maybe through a gift of teaching. Right? So, so you see that. The other thing you need to see is that twice it says utterance, which means that these are inspired speech. It's an utterance of wisdom. It's an utterance of knowledge. And this is why it's best to understand, and I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but it's best to understand that the people with the gift of teaching probably have one of these gifts. Now, what's the difference between the utterance of, of wisdom versus knowledge? Now, when you understand wisdom, wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is knowing how to apply your knowledge or how to make a, the best decision 
when things are confusing, right? How to make the best decision in any context. And in this context, it's a Christian context. It is the church. And we know that throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been comparing the wisdom of this world to the wisdom of the church, which is foolishness to the world. And the wisdom of the church is the wisdom of Christ. And so whatever wisdom this is, it needs to point people to live for Christ and understand Christ. And prior to... Uh, uh, or during the time when, when Paul wrote, the scriptures weren't completed yet. So we can understand that wisdom here is probably talking about applying the gospel, applying Christ-likeness, applying knowledge of God's teaching and God's word, applying God's truth. Right. So people who are gifted in helping you apply God's word, they have this gift of knowledge, I mean this wisdom, I'm sorry, that needs to be spoken. And this wisdom is not common sense. It has to be inspired by the Spirit. So when someone says, hey, it's wise to save money, I have a spiritual gift of wisdom, you would say, no, that's common sense. It's wise to save money. Everybody knows that. You don't have, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. right? That's not anything spiritually inspired. And so this has to be something that's inspired by the Spirit, where someone else says that and says, that's wise because it's powerful, because I'm convicted that I need to apply that wisdom. Second, knowledge. Well, if wisdom is the application of the knowledge, then the knowledge is the knowledge. This is the gift to learn, to analyze, and to uncover insights regarding the Christian faith. Now, once again, we have the Bible. Paul wrote when... The Bible was not yet completed. So during that time, obviously, the Spirit is going to be moving through the spiritual teachers and the apostles, giving knowledge of His Word. And others who are gifted in learning, analyzing, in covering, uncovering these insights, they're able to exercise that knowledge. Okay? And today, because we have the Scriptures, we would still say that there needs to be something spiritually inspired, right? but that we have to look to Scripture. So anybody who's going to give you an utterance of wisdom or an utterance of knowledge, it needs to be aligned with biblical principles and biblical teaching. Otherwise, how can anybody actually prove that it is wisdom or knowledge that's from God? It needs to align with Scripture. Now, it doesn't have to be verbatim a verse or directly something that's in the Scriptures because that's the part where the Holy Spirit moves through people when you're conversing. But when you're conversing on something that's clearly biblical, and someone gives you wisdom and you're like, you know, that aligns with God's truth, then you can trust that if you're blessed by it, if you're edified, if you're built up, then that is an exercise of the spiritual gift. Now let's move to verse 9 where we see gifts of miraculous power. Gifts of miraculous power. It says to another, so notice that there's a divine distribution, right? Not everybody has the same gifts. It says to another, faith by the same spirit. Another gifts of healing by one spirit. Now, what's the gift of faith? Now, this is clarified in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Let me read that to you. It says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as as so to remove mountains but not have love, I am nothing. And again, that's the context of if you have spiritual gifts but you don't have love, then it voids your spiritual gifts. It's, it's meaningless if you're not exercising the gifts in love, right? Because the Spirit of God exercises through love. But notice that it says, what is this faith? So this is not the faith that saves you. This is not talking about placing your faith in Christ because every believer needs to have that saving faith. 
this is talking about the gift of faith. So, so if you're ever going to ch- uh, plan a church, you need to have somebody, one of the lead pastors who's planning the church, or a prayer warrior on the core team that actually has the gift of faith. This is someone who prays and says, you know what? I just trust. It's not some blind faith. It's just I just trust that God is going to grow this ministry. I've been praying, and I just trust. And some people say, how is God going to grow that ministry? How are we going to plant that church? Aren't there enough churches out there? What do you mean we're going to save people? What do you mean? So someone has the gift of faith. Someone says, you know what? There's faith that moves mountains. People who have the gift of healing today, right? And obviously we we don't look at it as like, the glory of the healer. That's not how we understand that because we, we agree that, that anybody can pray for healing and it's God who heals. But those who truly pray often for healing and God answers, it's because they probably also have the gift of faith. That they actually believe that even though there's medicine, they actually believe that God can heal as well. All right, so there's a gift of faith in a symbolic sense in a way where mountains can move. And that's, or mountains can be removed. And that's clearly from 1 Corinthians 13. It says it right there. It helps you understand what that faith is, right? Uh, and, and just to help you understand, you would never give credit to a church planter who is successful to say, oh, that guy's so great. It's because his skills are so awesome. It's because he was so courageous. No, you can't do that. You would give all glory to God. And so what credit at all would you give to the person who exercised faith, you would say they have the gift of faith through the Spirit, that God worked glorious faith through his servants. I already mentioned the gift of healing. The gift of healing is a miraculous gift. Healing is considered a sign gift and a prayer gift. Now, in the early church, once again, when Christianity was brand new, and there were all kinds of sorcery, there were all kinds of false religions, there were magicians that were empowered by Satan, and there were weird manifestations, that the gospel had to come with power. So in the early church, often, how you saw Jesus moving, and how you saw the apostles moving, is that they were casting out demons, and they were healing people. So, so first and foremost, they would always preach the gospel. And when they preached the gospel, sick people at times were healed. And it was mainly a means of evangelism to convert people. What we see sometimes today is that people will go to churches only for healing. Like, like the healing is the main event. The preaching of the gospel is secondary. Like people go there just to be healed. And everybody who's part of that church, they just want to see a healing every single week. And so I'm not saying that God doesn't heal that way. God still heals, but it's because we pray and God heals. And so how we understand the gift of healing, so it's, the, it's not so much that you have people walking around that every time they touch you, you're healed, because that would be the glory of the man, right? That would make that person a miracle worker, and everybody would go to that person. I mean, that person would eliminate the need for medicine. You would just go to these guys, that every time they touch you, they heal. That's, that's not how it works, because people who have the gift of healing will tell you that they pray often and God doesn't always answer. So how we understand it theologically is that there are certain people, and sometimes we don't know who these people are, is that they pray to God often. And more often than not, that more frequently God answers their prayers. And so it's like you go to a prayer meeting, you're reading off a prayer list, 
And you can lay hands, because in the book of James, it does say to pray for the sick. You can lay hands, but all you know that it's not the man who heals, it's God that heals. Sometimes you don't even know who, if, if it's because one person laid hands on you. You have five people laying on hands, you all pray, and God heals. Who gets the glory? Not any man or woman, but God himself. And so if God chooses to heal through humans, then it's all glory to God. Now, where would this be necessary? In places where you don't have the establishment of churches, where the scriptures maybe are not that available, in places where maybe Christianity is highly persecuted and Christians are being persecuted, and where the demons are working in powerful ways. Places where there are shamans and, and you have villages where people are in fear because of evil and demonic activity. And today, you would say that God is working through missionaries during those places. It's different in America where the scriptures are legal and we have all kinds of translations everywhere. And if people say, I, I don't believe in Jesus unless I see a healing. But wait, you have scripture. That's like what... what, what the New Testament says when it says, well, there's an unbelieving generation that no sign will be given because, because no sign is good enough that even if there's healing, they still won't believe. Right? So in America, oftentimes you see this abuse where sometimes people only want the powerful stuff, but then they don't want the scriptures. And so that's why I would say that you see this more in other countries and you hear it from missionaries more than you will see experienced in our day here where the scriptures are allowed and God still heals and we know God still heals. And that's why I pray in the strong name of Jesus and I always pray in the power of the spirit that you would perform a sign gift for what? For the sake of the gospel that others would be saved. It is a sign gift in the New Testament and that's how we understand it today. Okay. Uh, in verse 10, it continues. It says, to another, the working of miracles. Now, what's the difference between healing and miracles? Now, a couple things is when you see the gifts, the gift of healing, both in, in this verse here in, cha uh, in chapter 12, here in uh, verse, uh, what is it, verse 8, uh, and then later at the end of the chapter, the gifts of healing, for some reason it's in the plural. And we don't really know why it says gifts of healing. And so how we understand it is, is just that different types of healing, meaning you get healed from different types of diseases. But oftentimes you have to see there's a distinction that miracles include healing. But the best way to understood this is, understand this is in the New Testament, oftentimes you would see healing with the casting out of demons because there's a demonstration of power. It's not always the case that the person who is sick is demon-possessed, but often in Jesus' day and often in the New Testament, people were oppressed, they had sickness, and it was because there was spiritual power that was over them. And so when the apostles came around, not only did they bring healing, but that healing came with an exorcism. And so those gifted with exorcism, those gifted with the ability to discern the evil spirit. So you got to see that people have more than one gift. That the people who can discern the evil spirits and casting out, and, and, and they probably say something uh, in their own language, like, in the name of Jesus, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out. That, that's what the exorcism, to come out of the person. And then, the, and then if that person gets saved, the Holy Spirit goes in instead, seals them. I don't believe that a believer can be possessed because the Holy Spirit has sealed them. A believers can be attacked by evil. 
and, and can be attacked by demons, but they cannot be possessed. So if someone is demon-possessed, they're not a believer. The Holy Spirit is not yet in them. So there has to be an exchange. And that's, there's an exorcism, then the miracle of conversion, which we all experience happens, and the Holy Spirit goes in them. Right, so this is so you can see why in the early church all these gifts are so necessary. You're talking about a, an evangelistic movement of an early church prior to Scripture. Now these gifts still exist today because there are places in this world that that type of miracle needs to happen, like Muslim nations, where once again you almost have to be silent and hide, otherwise be killed. So how does God work? He still works. He still speaks. He still moves. And there are miracles. And there is demon possession. And we know there's demon possession in this world. And God still works. And he, he delivers people. So that's the working of miracles. And then it says to another um, prophecy. Right? To another prophecy. And so now we're getting into gifts of inspired utterances and discernment. Utterances and discernment. Right? So prophecy. Prophecy is the gift to communicate biblical revelation in the power of the Spirit. It needs to be biblical revelation. Uh, I know that some people exercise prophecy like, okay, your business is going to do really well today. You're going to marry someone in two years. That's not the exercise of the gift. I'm not saying that that kind of thing didn't happen in the Bible. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the Spirit of God can't, I guess, speak through certain people, but that's not... That's not what it, ta it talks about because prophecy all understood all throughout the scriptures was the prophet prophetically speaking the word of God. And in the New Testament, prior to the scriptures being completed, it's the same thing where the word of God would be prophetically spoken. But it doesn't need to be preaching. So one form of prophecy is teaching and preaching but it's not a prepared sermon because it's it's the spirit of god speaking once again you can have non-christian professors of religion teaching in secular like yale divinity school or something right really knowledgeable but they don't have the spirit of god they don't have teaching they just have knowledge of the bible the difference is that certain men of god are inspired by god when they explain the word of god there is power is that not only do Christians understand the knowledge, but it convicts them. And that's not because the man is great. That's not because the human is awesome. That is because the Spirit of God is exercising power. And where people would say, when you spoke to me, I've heard that a million times, but when I heard that this morning, the Word of God spoke to me. This is the same thing where believers, like I said, are sharing Bible verses with each other spontaneously or the or just because you did your devotions you wouldn't take credit for it but you're building each other up a lot you're going to see when we get to chapter 14 it says prophesy often almost that there's more people with the gift of prophecy right that people are prophesying sharing God's word it has to be the word of God it has to be rooted in the word of God right and we know that that in 1 Corinthians 14, 32, it says that the prophets had to, had to be, that whatever they spoke had to be judged by other prophets. You look at it, chapter 14, verse 32. It says, whoever speaks. And this is why I started in Isaiah chapter 6. Is that people wouldn't just be carelessly going around saying whatever they want about the future. Or guessing. Or saying, oh, I got a word from the Lord. You're going to be a millionaire. 
You know, that's not what happens. You're trembling. And, and it's not a prepared sermon either, right? Where you're like, oh, I'm going to give you this knowledge because I spent 20 hours writing you a script. It can be, but it's because in that moment, something is happening. So how can another person judge that what you're saying is the word of God? Today, we got the scriptures. In the New Testament times, whatever was said, if it aligned with the apostles' teaching, Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Anything that aligned with the apostles' teaching, they would say, okay, that's in line. Okay, we can say that that's prophetic. Anything that was out of line with the apostles' teaching, there were false prophets that Paul often rebuked and corrected. So when you look at chapter 14, it helps you understand. The other reason why I do not believe the prophecy is simply a prepared sermon is I want you to see this. Look at chapter 14, verse 6. Chapter 14, verse 6. Notice what it says. It says in chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? You notice that it's distinct. Or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. The or tells you that it's separate, right? Some revelation or knowledge or prophecy, or teaching. Now, you could lump those together, but I would say they're listed consistently in 1 Corinthians 12. They're listed individually. In chapter 14, they're listed individually. Best to understand them individually. So if knowledge is referring to teaching, and if teaching is our modern form of preaching, right, explaining a prepared sermon, explaining the Word of God, analyzing the Word of God, giving application, then prophecy carries... It doesn't have to be spontaneous, but there is some spiritual power that happens where the Spirit takes your words and makes it powerful, right, in times where he wants to. So prophecy is given, once again, to specific people, not everyone. Prophecy speaks biblical truth for us today that boldly edifies, exhorts, rebukes, and consoles people. We see this from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. But when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 to 25, Prophecy also includes exposing hidden sin in the hearts of individuals. And this is where sometimes you take for granted that when you got the word of God or you're using biblical principles in biblical counseling, at times, just by listening and having people share, the gift of discernment comes in. And you start to discern, oh, that person's sharing this surface sin, but they might have a hidden idol. And God sometimes speaks prophetically, right? Uh, and so this is what you hear about in certain biblical uh, charismatic churches where people are talking, they're praying after service, having a conversation, and someone, someone is sharing about their struggles, and another person says, you know, might I confront you about your sin? Uh, and they, they use charismatic language like, I have a word from the Lord. But what they mean is they're talking about a biblical category. And so prophecy, sometimes it has that prophetic nature of a spontaneous nature. Okay, uh, the next is distinguishing between spirits and discernment. Now, first John tells us, right, that you have to discern. Sometimes when you when you hear someone speak, you can discern that that's evil. There's certain people in the church that God has given the gift of discernment because when the false teachers come in and want to deceive the sheep or when people come in and they're sent by Satan 
or when demon, demonic people come in, there needs to be people. So you can see that someone who has a gift of miracles and exercises demons must have this gift as well. They have to discern the evil spirit. Certain people with the gift of prophecy, not everyone, also might have a discerning spirit, able to discern sin, able to discern demonic activity, right? And able to even maybe even discern false uh, tongues. And that leads to the final one. And this is the most controversial. And that's why, you know, we'll, we'll say more on Tuesday night. But tongues and interpretation. Tongues and, and interpretation. Notice that, that in, the, in the final verse, let me um, look at this. I might have lost my note somewhere. In verse 10, right, it says, it says, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, 27, 28, it makes it clear that tongues are not to be used out of control, that there must be order, that the speakers in the early church who spoke in tongues had to remain silent unless there was interpretation. Okay, so based on that, I want to give you our understanding of tongues and interpretation. The gift of tongues is an unknown, private, heavenly, unintelligible, meaning when you speak it, people aren't going to understand you, prayer language given to specific individuals. That individual might understand what they're praying, so they might have the gift of interpretation as well. Otherwise, you're going to have someone prophetically, God gives them the gift of tongues. They utter it. Everyone's silent. Then someone discerns it, that that's not an evil spirit. And the person with the gift of interpretation says that's what they meant. And everybody says, wow, that aligns with the apostles' teaching. And we're all affirmed. That is not what you see in charismatic churches today, right, or Pentecostal churches. You see the praise songs going. They're repeating the bridge a million times. And everyone's just going. Right? They're just mantra, and everyone's just uttering, and they're imitating each other. And they're just going. And people are being pushed and slain, and which is not a gift, falling down. Somebody's doing holy laughter. People running around with flags. And so you see all that, and what do you see? Do you see order? Right? So it's not so much being dogmatic, but I'm saying that this, there may be people in those churches who truly have the gift of tongues. And so they're drawn to these churches and then there's other, church, there's other people who might be imitating, but we don't know that. But what you see is you don't see the practice in 1 Corinthians 14 where you see one person speaks at once. Interpretation is given, then the next person speaks. And then interpretation is given, and the next person speaks. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 is very clear, right? When it describes in verses 14 to 15, it says, this is prayer with the Spirit, not with the mind. What does that mean? If it's... When you pray with your mind, you understand what you're actually praying. When it says straight up, prayer with the spirit, ecstatic, but not with the mind, it means the person with the gift of tongues might not know what they're praying. Interpretation helps, right? It's very clear. And uh, it says not ecstatic, but self-controlled, verses 27 and 28 of 1 Corinthians 14. So it's very clear that someone's not going to say, this is uncontrollable, I have to to burst out. No. Actually, the people who truly have the gift of tongues have self-control as well. Is that they have discernment. The people that I truly know that have shared with me that they have a gift of tongues and I believe them are people who tend to pray all the time. 
And actually, they don't want to pray in tongues because they don't want to cause people to stumble. So they pray privately. And they always come to me and say, Pastor, I pray for you every day. So I'm not going to tell them, like, oh, you don't have a gift. You know? <laughs> I say, thank you. Pray for me. Right? But they never want to disturb people. They're almost afraid. There's almost a humility, a trembling, a brokenness. They don't want to come out and cause anyone to stumble. And because of the humility, the love, the consistency, I actually believe them. Because I don't have to give a tongue, so I don't know what it's like. I believe them because I see everything else that's described here. Love, humility, looking out for the common good. So when you see the pressure for everyone to speak in tongues in order to be proved that you're saved, and everyone's going at the same time, that's not what we see in 1 Corinthians 14. The other thing that needs to be explained here is that what we see in 1 Corinthians, for some reason, is not the same as what you saw in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it is of the mind. Everybody understood what the other person was saying. That was a sign, of a Pentecost, if you will. That was a sign of the gospel prototypically going to the nations. That people were actually speaking foreign languages for the sake of evangelism, and everybody, for some reason, understood in their own tongue that language. Say, oh, that person's speaking my language. So I already understood. I don't need the gift of interpretation. What you see here is unintelligible and requires interpretation and one at a time. What you see in Acts 2 is everybody going at the same time and, and no interpretation was needed because people understood in their own language the gospel. So what we see in Acts 2 was a one-time phenomenon that is different from this angelic prayer language that you see here in chapter 12 to 14. Now i got to bring us home. So for verse, verse 11 summarizes everything. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says, And all these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the big idea we see this morning is that Christ, the Lord, because everything is supposed to go under the Lordship of Christ. Christ is sovereign over the unity, diversity, and distribution of spiritual gifts. Christ is sovereign over the unity, diversity, and distribution of spiritual gifts. And the application for us today is that, one, we need to discover our gifts, but above all, we need to practice love and unity because that's the main thrust of chapters 1 through 14. And so we'll pick up part 2 next week. I'll see you Tuesday night at 8 p.m. And, and we'll explain more about the modern and historic charismatic and Pentecostal movements so that you can really understand more about what's going on. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. We pray, Lord, that in our church we would experience the power of your manifestation through spiritual gifts. We pray, Lord, that in our church, you would unleash the gifts. Help every single believer to not only discover their gifts, but to develop those gifts and, to, and that those gifts would be deployed and exercised so that we would be a vibrant church of disciple makers because we're all exercising spiritual power. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.